You are listening to a Pleasure Podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Thanks for tuning in. Sluts and Scholars is a sex-positive, shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter. While we love to give advice and resources, please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy. This episode is sponsored in part by Hashtag Lube Life. Hashtag Lube Life products are made in California from the highest quality ingredients in their USDA-certified organic facility and are available in water-based, silicone, flavored, and more. To buy through Amazon, go to lubelife.com. They're already super affordable, but now you can get 20% off by using our Sluts and Scholars promo code 20SCHOLARS, 20SCHOLARS. If you lube it, they will come. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars, where we talk smart and fuck smarter. I'm Nicoletta, and I'm a sexologist and marriage and family therapist. And I'm Simone, and I am a law student and unabashed slut. This week, we are joined by Shira Myro. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist, like Nicoletta, a mindfulness educator and founder of the mindfulness-based Yale Street Therapy Group, which is in Santa Monica her private practice. Shira specializes in relationship intelligence. She treats couples and marriages with a focus on rebuilding attunement, improving attachment, and emotional literacy. Shira also works with individuals in transition looking for love, in breakup, recovery, or going through divorce. Shira has a special focus on treating adult children of severely mentally ill parents with attachment injuries, including parents with borderline personality disorder who are bipolar and have schizophrenia. Hi. Whoa, what an intro. Hi. And before this, you were also watching her TED Talk. Oh my God, which is like honestly so helpful right now. I'm feeling like so down because I'm a law student and we have to apply for summer internships. And I literally went to law school with the intention to work in reproductive rights impact litigation. And I have been routinely rejected from all of the organizations that do it. And it's really taking a toll on my self-worth. So that's where I'm at today, friends. Okay. <laughs> okay. Right into the free therapy session. Exactly. No, that's actually why we therapy. brought to help heal our attachment injuries. Yes, okay. Well, no, I mean, you're just talking, it, it was very helpful to, to, to realize that, like, my feelings of failure are not unique, as unique and special as I am. And I don't know, it was just, it's, it was helpful to recalibrate. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. You know, and I, I do think back to this question. Even if failure can be, a, it's it can be more of a feeling state. Um, even though we identify it with a, you know, let's say rejection or something that's not working in our favor, but but that mindful awareness, which was in the talk, but I think it, it really applies here too to know that that the feeling state can pass, as opposed to it being something fixed and true about our identity. So I'm waiting for it to pass and pass it fucking better. <laughs> pass it will. Pass it fucking will. Pass it will. <laughs> um, so you in the intro, um, you said emotional intelligence. I'm curious what how you define emotional intelligence. No, relationship intelligence oh, and emotional literacy. Into- oh, yes, yes, thank you okay, for the okay. clarification. Okay. Yeah. So relational intelligence. Yes, um, as opposed to emotional literacy. Yeah, or, or, both. or both. Or just what are these terms? I think I said emotional intelligence because I was thinking of that Bachelor episode when uh, 
like that therapist was like, Corinne doesn't have any emotional intelligence. <laughs> ah, okay. Well, well, let's 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 start with that, right? I mean, some of these terms can be interchangeable. I, I would say that um, back to relationship intelligence, or let's say, I think relationship intelligence is really understanding about more about. Um, interpersonal skillfulness, right? It's, it's not just being able to express yourself or even express yourself articulately, but really being able to have that dialogue, that back and forth dialogue with another person, noticing their cues, noticing their body language, being able to read into their eyes and also being able to be responsive versus emotionally reactive. So there's, there's real skillfulness in relationships. I think a lot of times we, we think it's about that serotonin hit, you know, feeling connected and we have so many common interests or maybe there's a natural attraction there. Yeah, you like pizza, I like pizza. I like pizza, eh? we both like pizza. You know, we're so, we're so aligned versus the sort of the skill, skills that you need um, to work through, especially when conflicts come up or when you feel misattuned. So that actually moves into skillfulness and that requires some intelligence and some self-awareness versus just you like pizza, I like pizza. Yeah, and I think it's it's important to say that intelligence, it doesn't mean that if you don't have this that you're stupid. It's yes. more like yes. you didn't have the resources or yes. learn this growing up. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask because to me I connote the term intelligence with something innate. Like an intelligence is a thing you have, not necessarily a skill you can grow. That's how I understand the word intelligence. I don't mm-hmm. necessarily agree with you know what the social implications of that are, mm. but you're not saying that that's true about relationship intelligence. Relationship intelligence is very much something you can cultivate and these are skills you can acquire. Yes, absolutely. And literacy along with that, when I'm talking about emotional literacy, it's, it's learning, in other words, to become more curious about what the intelligence, the native intelligence that our, our body sort of creates for us in an emotional response. So oftentimes, and especially with women or historically, right, women have been viewed as, oh, they're, they're too emotional and, you know, they're not as logical or analytical. And what are you talking about? I'm not emotional. <laughs> well, we know actually um, there's no evidence to, to prove that men are emotional creatures as well, but learning to become curious. I, I think these are skill sets that you can acquire like anything else about how to use your emotions and work with your emotions to reveal something about what's happening internally in your experience. And so, but oftentimes we think, okay, emotions or an emotional response is some kind of liability and we try to shut it down and suppress it. And we definitely think it has no place in the workplace. Um, And it's unfortunate because, right, there's a whole dimension of experience that we're we're devaluing in, in that assessment. I think it's really interesting what you said about the presence of emotional literacy in the workplace and how emotions can actually be useful in the workplace. And I'm curious if you have any examples about that and things that have been typically shut down that are actually probably good for cultivating a healthy work environment. Specific to women? Specific to women or just like what, how emotional literacy translates to like concrete workplace skills? Ah, great question. You know, well, one of the, one of the ways that uh, I, I employ... Uh, acquiring emotional literacy is, is, is mindfulness practice. And so, and so let me give you a basic just working definition of mindfulness. It's uh, the ability to be in the present moment 
uh, noticing the thoughts, feelings, and physical sensations that are arising in your experience without judging it and coming from a compassionate point of view. In other words, that gives you almost a, a witnessing place to observe what's arising in your internal landscape without over-identifying it with it. So when I was saying earlier, right, not getting attached to a particular feeling state, that's that's mm-hmm. how I use mindfulness. It's a fantastic self-regulating tool. It's it's both. It helps regulate you so that you don't become overly reactive, but it also gives you the possibility um, to be responsive. And so let's say uh, you were passed over for a promotion or somebody else got that internship. And so <laughs> so just a, just as a hypothetical example. You cry. Okay. Right. So first there might be some anger, there might be some rage, there might be some uh feelings uh, of sadness or loss I or to know why. Sure, ab- absolutely. So insufficiency. <laughs> sure, it, inadequacy, all of those things might be so you might start feeling really flooded with emotions. And so the mindful awareness, you might, let's say, not in the presence of others, but take five minutes, go outside, go to the bathroom and take a few breaths and just simply notice what's coming up. And with that compassionate awareness, then decide, okay, what am I going to do in this moment, right? Do I have to get through the rest of the hour with some people that I'm having mixed feelings about? Like, how do I have some self-compassion for myself and my situation? And how can I move move through it in a way where I'm, I'm somewhat composed, but still allowing for your experience? And so I think, you know, when we think about how how we can be in in the work world it's it's unfortunate like women cannot be angry right when you come across as angry or too confident uh, well <laughs> that's a whole other conversation yeah. men are allowed to be angry but women are not right women get shut down as shrews and the B word. Yes. I don't know if I. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you I can, can say bitch. <laughs> you can say cunt if you want. <laughs> okay. Good company. Well, I mean, that's what happens, isn't it? Right? Women aren't allowed to express those emotions. And here's the thing you know, anger can also be a really powerful, interesting emotion. Um, in emotionally focused therapy, right, we see anger as often the, a secondary emotion when there's a primary emotion, which could be like hurt. And so, mm-hmm. so just to kind of define secondary emotion, it's usually the emotion that maybe comes out or like feels yes. safer for people. Like anger feels like an active emotion, yes. but usually there's something underneath that was like causing the anger. Like you said, like sadness, yes. like fear, um, hurt. Right, or a feeling of loss. Yeah. And so that's another way to sort of drop down into that underlying emotion there. And let's say once you, you get to that place, is it really, are you really angry at that other person? Are they really taking something away from you? It's, it's more about, okay, there's, maybe there's fear there that I'm not going to land in my right place, in my right internship, and the uncertainty that comes with it and the anxiety that comes with it. And if you can, it's almost like when you ask the wrong questions, you go someplace else. You go into some other different kind of tangent and we can circle mm-hmm. back around to relationships. But but that's so important because if you're asking, if, you're, if you can hone in on the right question, then whatever the antidote is, whatever, whatever the... Um, the self-regulation, whatever the compassion is going to look like, is going to feel much closer to home. And it, it, there's something amazingly clarifying about that. 
when you kind of distill what's really going on for you, that way, in answer to your question, Simone, is you start to move in the world in a a much more, I want to say, efficient way because you know what's really going on for you. Yeah, I mean, I think the the better question is like, when is emotional literacy not needed in the workplace? Because if you're going to work and you're a human being who has feelings, there's no way that you can just like take that away when you go to work. It's not like when I go to the workplace, like I'm not a human anymore and I don't have feelings. So it's totally, there's always going to be things that come up or get projected onto people and situations. So I think it's always helpful and necessary, but in our culture, we don't necessarily put it on a pedestal that that is an important thing to, that makes you successful. Yes, exactly. When I was even asking the question, I wasn't even thinking about like emotional self-literacy. I thought you meant like how to properly read other people's emotions. It's, it's both. Great. It's, it goes both ways, right? I think knowing... But the fact that like even taking care of yourself first before you can even start to read other people's is like so fucking important. And the fact that that's not even what occurred to me, I just feel it's very telling. Well, we're conditioned as women from day one to, to be more focused on, on others and reading others versus staying in touch with yourself. Yeah. So, and that's, that's part of that transition that there's a there's a parallel process about self and being able to to know what's happening for you internally so that you can you can be a lot more explicit and direct when you're dealing with others interrelationally right it's super important they it, they go hand in hand yeah. i think another thing that impacts our interactions which is a focus of the work that you do is attachment so our our attachment styles, how we learn to connect with people. Um, so for, for folks who aren't familiar with attachment, maybe we could go through like a little what bit. are the attachment styles. Sure, <laughs> absolutely. So you know the attachment school. First, I guess I, I want to have a caveat. It's not the only lens through which to work through problems, but some of the descriptions can be very useful, I think, as a starting place. So th- the basic premise is that um, there's an imprint, um, sort of a blueprint from our caregivers when we're born. Yeah. Um, and traditionally, you know, it's it's those early years, it's those infancy years and the, and the early years after that, although I do think we're attaching on some level um, throughout childhood and our adolescence, um, secure attachment. Uh, secure attachment is basically this. Uh, I want to say confidence, a knowing that your needs are going to be met. That whoever your primary caregiver is, your mother or your father or whoever it is, is meeting meeting your attachment needs most of the time. Now, for those of for those of us that are not securely attached, what that looks like is you know your your caregiver is going to be less attentive to your needs. Uh, and I would say it breaks down into anxious or anxious preoccupied, and they call it anxious ambivalent, which is, you know, let's say hypothetically mom is there sometimes, but not all the time. And so you're, you feel you feel very tenuous, kind of apprehensive. Is, is she there? Is she coming? She's not coming. Is my coming. person going to show up when I need them? Are they going to show up? You're not sure. You're kind of on the fence, and that makes you what they call anxious ambivalent as an adult. And then I'm simplifying this for conversational purposes and then yeah, google avo- it if you want yeah exactly and and avoidant uh, those those people become emotional islands when they're adults they're like you know what i don't think mom's coming mom, mom doesn't show up or dad doesn't show up i'm good like i'm not expecting that so we see avoidance and actually anxious and avoidance really attracting each other because they're doing that dance of the the anxious person becoming the pursuer like wanting more attention needing more and then the avoidance saying 
you know what, I need space, I need space, I need space. So you can see. Yeah, and the, the more the avoidant person pulls away, the yes. more the anxious person holds on tightly. Pursues, exactly. And then the more the avoidant pulls away. A hundred percent. You can see how this <laughs> Sounds like some relationships I've had. <laughs> Maybe we've, we've all had, and there aren't hard numbers, right? I mean, they, they haven't done huge studies where they can say, you know, 70% of the population is secure. But the beautiful part, I think, is attachment let's say we're fairly unconscious. When you're six months old, you don't even know that you're, until you're six months, you don't even know that you're separate from your, from your mom. You just don't know. And so this isn't, this is kind of blueprinting um, happens when we don't really have any self-awareness, but as adults, we do have self-awareness. And so I'm very interested in how we can renegotiate once you kind of become aware of your attachment disposition. Style sounds like it's a lifestyle choice. And I don't think any of us, choose to be anxious or neurotic or ambivalent. It just kind of shows up in our relationships. Now you could say, well, hey, if you're anxious, ambivalent, and you're avoidant, how do you ever hook up? How do you ever get together and get in a relationship? So what I'm really talking about, that stuff really doesn't show up until after the limerence phase fades and now you're you're into a relationship with each other. And then you start noticing certain patterns about how the two of you Mm. You know, it's like the, the honeymoon period is a little bit over. And then now certain things aren't coming in as flowing as easily as they did uh, in the beginning of that. Right. I think it's important to note that like struggles in attachment can be very small early on. So I think people imagine like someone who is becomes, you know, anxiously attached that their parent was like very clearly not present, which could be true, but it may just be like you were crying one time and you don't even remember it and your mom or other caregiver didn't show up soon enough and you learned like, I can't count on this. And so it's very insidious sometimes, it seems like. Oh my God. One time I was put on timeout and I was forgotten about for like hours. (laughs) Maybe one hour. <laughs> it felt Definitely like hours. longer than the timeout was supposed to be. But I stayed on timeout because I'm a rule follower. Interesting. 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 I wonder if I am like an um, attachment anxious person. What do you think, Nicoletta? You and I have a relationship. I don't know. I can't speak for, for you. I can speak for myself. I think I definitely developed some anxious attachment styles. And for me, the way it's showed up is... Um, I kind of describe it like feeling like there's always a hole in the bucket mm. of love. So oh, like you need, yeah, like you keep, no matter how much maybe somebody puts in um, love or says they love you or does X, Y, and Z, it feels like it's, it's hard to feel like it's enough. Sure. Um, so you're constantly mm. like reaching and, and grasping um, for more. Yes. And so that hunger can't be filled. Yes. You know, that bucket can't be filled by another person. So part of the work um, that you're describing is now that I know this about myself, yes. now what? But you can, you can um, plug up a hole with like a finger or a dick or a dildo. <laughs> te- te- temporarily. Right? Temporarily. Temporarily. Yeah, yeah it may, may not fill the existential oh, hole. Right. It will fill the other orifice. <laughs> just was clarifying. Just was seeking But that is a good point. I mean, a lot of us turn to sex and, cl- and relationships yes. To, yes. to get those needs met. Yes, they do, you know, and so back to this parallel process, which is how much can you ask the other partner to carry for you? What's what's a reasonable amount to say, you know, of showing up 
or of being present or of being attuned. Because what you see in relationships is when they show up, you know, the expectations that we have of love now, and there have been numerous people who have written about it, are, are so high. We're, we're looking, we're looking for self-expressive relationships, unless you're just looking for, you know, a fling or something on the side. But relationships that for people to to be companions, to be exciting sexual partners, to to really know you intellectually, spiritually, maybe even who your aspira- uh, your aspirational self is going to be. Um, you know, kind of back to this idea that we can be attracted to people on a purely sexual or erotic level. We can be attracted to them on a rom- yeah. <laughs> on a romantic level, and we can be yeah. <laughs> we can be attracted to them as attachment figures. So, yeah. Right? <laughs> now, not all three. Maybe if we're looking for a long term type of partnership, um, we might want all three, but not necessarily. It really depends. And so, you know, what I find interest, what I find interesting about the poly or more open, you know, open communities is there's, there's a sense of the, the distinction between the three and, and sometimes in, in more closed circles and more monogamous circles, you know, we're not really even having those discussions about, I mean, I had, right. You just expect it's all three. You just expect it's all three. And I actually explained to my my teenage son that you're going to be attracted. There's different levels of of attraction, and they're different. And it is important to kind of understand what they are so that you don't have, you don't improperly project, or you might be aware that when they're projecting onto you. I think there's also different levels of desire, too. Absolutely. So just something that I explain to a lot of my couples is, levels of wanting. So there's maybe that like initial thing like, oh, I'm super horny, I'm very excited, you know, I want I want this now, but usually in a plug up yeah, my bucket. But usually in a long term, especially monogamous relationship, there's other levels of wanting of like I, I like I want to connect with you. I know that if we have sex, it's good for the relationship. Um yes. yeah, so the, the, those are levels of wanting too. Yes. That aren't just like immediate desire. Right, and and because we may not always be aware with within ourselves what it is that we're wanting, we're not actually having the conversation internally. So sometimes that gets expressed, and I want to say a kind of um, what's the word, like an inaccurate way. Like we kind of fumble along. We're not able to be attuned to our our, our own desires or discern our own desires about what we're wanting in the moment. And that gets expressed. I think especially if you're avoidant or you're anxious, then you're sending out communication that's kind of muddled to your partner. So one thing that we mentioned in your bio was like working with people who had parents who were mentally ill, but I'm thinking about like the context of relationships. And I'm really curious about your opinion if you do have a mental illness, like you are bipolar, um, if you think there's kind of an obligation to disclose or what are the benefits of disclosing and like when should that happen in a relationship? That's a really good question. Um, Are you talking about dating or you're talking about you're already in relationship or you've just started a relationship? I think all of those. You know, I think with dating, dating is, is... well, first of all, hopefully you're medicated if you're if you're bipolar or you're in some kind of a treatment to contain those, whether you're bipolar one or bipolar two. Um, 
But I do think disclosure, when you move into the relationship phase, let's say if you're, if you're dating, if you're casually dating, if it's the first or second date or even third date, I, I don't think until it, it moves into a more serious situation that you, you need to disclose um, if, if you're fairly self-regulated and, and contained. But I think once you're in a relationship and now there's expectations, I, I think it's very important to alert your partner to, um, to what's happening. And especially if you're cycling and you're, let's say, going through a manic phase or a depressive phase, really important to keep them abreast of what's going on because it can lead to so much friction and conflict down the road. And, and mm. also taking, you know, taking care of, let's say, you use the, the term bipolar, the, that letting your partner in to your process is going to be so helpful because also, let's say when they're wanting to be intimate with you and you're not in a place where you can actually meet them and you're not ready for intimacy, either that or maybe you're super just and that's all that's on your mind, that's top of mind. So you guys can have a conversation, but mental health is so important and it's really important. Even let's say, you know, somebody who's experiencing mild depression for whatever reason that yeah, just like any sort of mental health issue. I think so. I think it should be part of the conversation. I think I think it's it's only going to help, you know. And of course, first of all, you're like, oh my god, what could be less sexy than you know letting my partner know that blah blah blah. But I think each of you are going to have different rhythms. You know, we have these internal lives, these complex internal lives, and sometimes back to this question of attunement. Sometimes you're not always going to be in t- attuned as in, you know, enmeshed and codependent. I, I don't think that's healthy attunement. And there's a, a shocking statistic. It's fascinating. They say, this was a contemporary study done, that um, that mothers attuned to their children, I, I believe it's, um, what's the number? I'm forgetting the number. I think it was like, like 70% of the time, that's what, they're not attuned to their children. And so this kind of goes at odds with our whole attachment theory that, okay, how do you have secure children, right, with secure attachment when parents are not all that attuned? Maybe their physical needs are getting met, but their emotional needs, and especially in the, you know, iPhones and video games and all of these things, we're so distracted, we're so fragmented. You know, what what is that actually going to translate for the generations that are growing up now in terms of even our ability, our capacity to attune, it's not going to be something that feels native to us in a way, mm-hmm. right? You know how sometimes, you know, even eye contact seems scary. Yeah, because as I'm like looking around. Yeah, you're looking around. You know, because let's say we're dating, you've just been texting, the whole relationship has been texting or sexting, and then suddenly you're in front of the other person, and you're mm-hmm. like, oh God, <laughs> you know, yeah. eye contact. Right. What do we do with that? Eye contact is so weird. Recently, I've been called out for not looking at people's eyes, but looking at people's mouths. I do the same thing. I look at their mouths too. Yeah. That's interesting. And people are like, you're looking at my mouth and they like think that I want to kiss them, but it's just easier to focus on. I don't know. Maybe because I'm short, maybe because I'm like having oral fixation. I don't know. Or maybe it feels less vulnerable, less intense. I don't know. I just don't know which eye. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe there's just, just some avoidance happening here. I don't know. I think going back to the, the disclosing piece, I think it's important to ask yourself, is it important to, to label yourself? Um, like, Because I think, obviously, as, as clinicians, maybe we, we do diagnose or put a label on things. But mm-hmm. I think putting a label on something or a mental health disorder can feel scary or stigmatizing. And so some folks don't even like to label themselves. But that doesn't mean you can't Mm -hmm. share and be curious about each other's internal states. 
Yes, you know, and I, I think it's it's curiosity that's so important. Curiosity as a, as compassionate a, curiosity. Yes, I love that. Um, or you know that kind of mindful inquiry about the other. That uh, it's more forgiving. It's softer. It's you know, tell me when we're thinking about you know emotional intelligence and and relational intelligence. That for you as as a partner, a witnessing partner, to to say, I want to know more about this. Tell me more about your experience. Tell me more about what you're going through. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, as opposed to something less compassionate. But. Yeah. So let's say someone comes into your office and they had a bipolar parent. Are there commonalities that you've seen among um, patients or clients who had a parent struggling with that? Adult children of severely mentally ill parents are often avoidant and anxious, but in, in somewhat extreme forms, a lot of them are high functioning, which is fascinating. You know, and certainly in, in Los Angeles, we have a lot of children who are who grow up in Hollywood who have, you know, parents, Hollywood parents, and so they have narcissistic parents to deal with. Sorry for the interruption, but pause this episode right now and go use our discount code to get some new lube from hashtag lube life. It's already affordable and organic, but if you use the discount code 20scholars, you can have it for even cheaper. Hashtag Lube Life products are made in California from the highest quality ingredients in their certified organic facility and are available in water-based, silicone, flavored, and more. I'm going to taste the watermelon flavor right now, actually. Ooh, it brings me right back to the days of lip smackers and bubblicious gum, except now it's even sexier. If you don't like flavor, they also have regular water-based, silicone, hybrids, and more. Remember to make sure you're using the right lube for your body, your toys, and your barriers. To buy hashtag LubeLife through Amazon, go to lubelife.com and use promo code 20scholars, 20-S-C-H-O-L-A-R-S. Stay wet and remember, lube is your best friend. Now, back to the episode. I just know, I just read this fascinating article this morning um, written by a child of narcissistic parents and how they process um like how they're like everyone stop think that stop thinking that Trump is going to feel shame mm. for being an asshole and like kind of the lessons they like kind of like obviously a lot of anxiety and a lot of pain but a lot of skills like coping skills coping mechanisms mechanisms I think evolve from people with really mentally ill parents just based on this <laughs> one article that I read this morning but that's just why I was nodding my head when you said the narcissism thing because I will I'll attach a link to this in the show notes because it was just like a fascinating, eye-opening um, Yeah, well, read. Okay, so, so back to your about point. Like, so yes, they can, they, they have coping skills, but what's amazing about clients and couples that come in is that we learn to adapt. And I, I wanted to bring this up in terms of even our expectations and around intimacy. We learn to be high-functioning in very particular ways, but then what happens is when we get into a intimate relationship, we realize that some of those adaptive patterns don't serve us. And so whether or not you're a parent or not, I, I think it also plays out in sex and intimacy where you your expectations around intimacy, especially when you're moving out of the limerence phase and into... What is the limerence phase? Uh, the limerence phase is like the in love phase where your brain looks like a brain on cocaine. <laughs> that you're flooded flooded with uh, oh. dopamine, right? You're, you're high in love. And it's that inflation phase, which is 
You know, it's it's funny because a lot of couples, they look so crestfallen. They, they just want to get back to that place, right, where everything was so intense and everything was so passionate and you just hate to yeah, be. Yeah, it's, like it's like a grieving process or a loss when that goes away. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's so, like a huge bummer. That's amazing that you said. It's a bummer. You know, but, but the, I mean, this is your job, Nicoletta, that it's, so, okay, so sex and intimacy or even passion, I feel like passion, there's so much pressure on having passionate sex and orgasming and having it being so exciting and you have to sort of steer them away to, I almost want to say, like a much bigger spectrum of... A different kind of sex. In, yes, a different kind of sex, um, a different quality of intimacy, sex that kind of runs the gamut. Um, and to have them be a little bit more curious about the fact that, okay, now we have to be more intentional about sex as opposed to just like, oh my God, it could just happen anytime, mm -hmm. anywhere. Like the grieving process is also around the spontaneity. Mm -hmm. Like it used to just feel like it was so easy and so natural and so organic. Right. Couples love that word. It used to feel so organic and now it doesn't. Now we have to work at it, therefore something must be wrong with the relationship. Like right. we're, losing, we're losing that connection. Huh. Nicoletta talks a lot about planned spontaneity. Yes. <laughs> um, which is um, well, I think it, it's just what you're saying that, like, there is this hope that, it, and this expectation that if we love each other, if we, you know, still are attracted to each other, that spontaneous sex will keep happening, that passionate spontaneity. Um, but it's just, it, you can't get back what was at the beginning because there's so many hormones and other chemicals, like, going on in your body. And so it's about planning for spontaneous intimate time. So maybe you'll say like every Friday we have date night and we kind of leave it open to like what that time looks like. Mm -hmm. um, like we can be spontaneous in that time, but if you don't plan for it, it's so easy to just not do it. Sure. Because life happens, work happens, like stress happens. And so it's, if you're just waiting for the spontaneous desire or the spontaneous sex to happen, it's probably not going to happen mm -hmm. as frequently. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. And back to this piece about uh, avoidance and uh, anxious ambivalence, I think that what will happen in the sort of companionate phase, right, when when now sex is going to take work, is oftentimes it takes a back burner. Mm -hmm. it, it, in other words, other other priorities in the relationship come, come forward. And I think that if it's not a priority for you or if you don't put it in the schedule, which people have so much resistance to. To putting uh, sex in the schedule. Yeah, putting sex in your schedule or date night. It's kind of interesting because it feels like a cliche. Okay, it's time for sex, Just you know, sex date. Let's make this happen. And and you, you see it, you know, in the couples in the room, like they roll their eyes. There's this knee-jerk thing. No, Shira, we didn't do a date night. You know, I just, I was too tired. Um, and... And so you feel kind of sad, like, hey, guys, where's, you know, where's the curiosity? And I feel this way, especially with, with parents of children. They put so much energy. They invest so much energy into their kid's Halloween costume or giving them new experiences. And the other interesting thing that they do is when you're, when you're a parent, your kid is constantly changing and going through different developmental phases. And so your job as a parent is, okay, when they're two, it looks very different when they're six. It looks very different when they're 13. And you're constantly modifying how you relate to them back to emotional literacy, how you're relating to them. You're tracking their development. You have to use different language mm -hmm. to try to connect to them and get on, get on the same page. But for our relationships, sometimes 
we don't have the energy, we don't have the bandwidth at the end of the day to get on the same page and get curious the way we're curious with our children. And so I feel like that really needs to shift. Mm. And for some, you know, for some clients, sex is a total priority. They, they get so much joy. They're looking to find new, exciting ways into yeah. having new alternative or novel experiences. Whereas I feel like a lot of couples, you know, it's, it's Game of Thrones. <laughs> Netflix and chill. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Game of Thrones is hot. Yeah, and there's a new there's a new season coming. I know. Yeah, I'm excited. But I've only watched the it's first season. It's easy to season, stop being curious. Yes. Yeah. It's and then because it's then, comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. But here's the thing: if you if you if you just let it if you just you let the garden go, so to speak, that that makes it possible for other things to fester in not a good way. And this is another piece that I wanted to bring up. The couples that um, mm. do not, or individuals that do not self-disclose, that sort of routinely avoid, right? it's just easier, right? It's easier to keep the peace. We were talking about this, Nicoletta. It's easier to just smooth things over, be the peacemaker, not rock the boat, not say, honey, mm. we haven't had sex, or actually, I'd like to have this kind of sex. I'm really bored of the sex that I'm having. Mm-hmm. Can we change it up? That not sharing these things plants the seeds down the road for conflict and relationship problems. That in other words, this sort of glacial freeze, not unlike Game of Thrones, right? The, what is it, the Night Walkers? Yeah. It's going to creep. Yeah. The, the, winter, <laughs> the winter, yeah, exactly. The, oh yeah, and the winter's coming. Exactly. No, no, winter is here, you guys. Yeah. Um, oh, that's right, because you're on the, yeah, how many seasons are there now? Season. I don't know, two minutes. But th- that's exactly, it. it's a great metaphor. Yeah. Like winter comes. In other words, you're you're not you're not um, you don't even think that that's what you're the seeds that you're sowing, but that's mm-hmm. actually what's what's happening there. And so, even if your partner can't meet you in the moment, and sometimes they can't, and that's really disappointing. And I think people are more afraid of the feeling of rejection or abandonment than they are. They're not willing to do that because it's it's it feels really bad. They're going to let you down. It's. I think if you want to be in a relationship, you have to be able to tolerate disappointment after expressing a desire and you have to be able to say something without expecting that it's going to happen. Yes. Oh, fuck. That's so hard. I'm oh, like, so I said right. it. So how do you work with that? Yeah. Like if I, so what's in the my right, personal how do you work? Yeah. Or, or in, you know, in your class. Well, I think it's, I'm sure it comes back to like our own internal stories, whether that be attachment or something else. But I think it's, stopping and asking yourself, like, why can't I deal with this disappointment? Do mm-hmm. I think that they don't love me? Do I think that they're not connected? Do I think that they're not attracted to me? And can you kind of separate that narrative from what's actually hap- happening? It's like, no, we're just not lining up in this moment. Yeah. Um, and I think there's ways that you can respond to your partner when they express a desire that you're not interested in. Um, so being like, oh, I'm, I think it's so sexy and attractive that like you told me that you want this. I'm really sorry. I'm not like in that space right now, but like, I hope we can, you know, take a rain check mm. as opposed to, yeah, as opposed to just oh, like, yeah. no, ew. Like, oh, why are God. you trying I to like, you get like... after me right now? <laughs> ew. Yeah. Don't do that. Yeah. But what if it's something that you're actually not Good interested question. in? Yeah. What if, it... what if it's not oh, something that I guess you have to say that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then what do you do? <laughs> What are best practices um, for that? What would you What would you say? Because I think, especially if it's something, I think especially if it's something that like 
you actually yeah. don't want to do, it was probably like all the harder for your partner yeah. to bring mm-hmm. it up. Right. Yeah. So I would say, I would say. I think it's all negotiation, but what would you well, say? It, well, it is negotiation. So first I would, I would validate my partner. I mean, in this, you wouldn't know that, but you would validate. So in other words, like, is it okay? Because sex is so terrifying when it comes to negotiation, precisely because, and I think this is where the attachment narratives come into play. If they reject me, that brings up all that attachment stuff. Mm -hmm. Either I can't ask for what I need, I'm never going to be met, it's just too scary, I've got to somehow self-contain and suppress all that. Yeah, so if you have this anxious attachment and you ask someone for something and they either don't want to or can't meet it, it's easy to globalize and go to a place of like, see, I knew that nobody would show up. I knew that they didn't care about me. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Or all the things I do for you... X, Y, Z, why wouldn't you do this thing for me? Mm-hmm. So so I would first honor and acknowledge that they're sharing something really intimate and, and private with you yeah. uh, and validate that. Mm-hmm. You know, and then I would say, I mean, and like this stuff, I think you, you can't just get to, let's say, reading it off a relationship blog. <laughs> I think you already need to have some trust and safety to be able to, to say that. Yeah. Uh, you got to come to your office first and work on the <laughs> or, or, or Nicoletta's <laughs> office first. You know, and then say, right, I'm, I'm not ready to do that, I'm, but I'm glad that you, sh- you shared that with me. You know, could we try X, Y, Z, or could you meet me in the middle? Or what if we... You know, in other words, that curiosity piece comes in where it's just like, where could we find a place where it's both erotic and exciting for us and start there as if it's a conversation, not sort of an endpoint. And I think we get so terrified that, Mm. oh my gosh, I'm going to feel rejected or I'm Mm going to feel shame or I'll feel stupid or you know what, I'm not even going to go there Mm -hmm. because it's that expectation that I won't be met. And not saying the only answer is non-monogamy, but I think it's <laughs> I think it's important to, you know, if you're expressing a desire and your partner's not interested and saying that it's a you know a red flag for them, like they don't want to ever do it. I think it's important to ask yourself, like, is oh sorry, a hard not limit. a red flag, a hard um, limit. If it's how important is this thing to you? Could you go on without this? Could you go on with like? a different level of that? Yes. Or do you feel like you really need and want it? And then can you negotiate a way that does work with your partner? Yes. Mm-hmm. So I guess if that's non-monogamy, it's yeah. like, well, can I get this need met, you know, with another partner? Can I get this need met in another way? But I think that's where monogamy falls short. Yeah, can I, I think it, not, not to say that you have to go into non-monogamy, but I think monogamy often falls short in how the conversation stops there. Yes. So it doesn't mean that you have to say like, yeah, I get that from someone else. But I think it's like, well, if I'm not going to give it to you, then conversation is over. Yes. As opposed to like, let's just keep talking about it and see if there's a, a way to negotiate. Yeah. And also, I, I mean, I think that even like the words we use, right? Like even just saying like, okay, it will be non-monogamous if I go do this thing somewhere else or you go do this thing somewhere else. Like that is where I do think sex workers are like really, really valuable um, like in terms of supporting those kind of desires, because I, I mean, obviously everyone has their own de- definition of like what monogamy is, but I think like a very negotiated like client interaction with a sex worker can be really supportive for this kind of situation. Um, without you know, um, bringing up certain fears of of like cheating and and. 
people who really don't want to identify as non-monogamous. I think it's it's just, just a scary there. conversation for a lot of people to have. Yeah, you know, and th- and there's also or the idea that like oh, go ahead, I'm not going to meet all of my partner's needs even though we know that like one person probably won't be able to do everything. Yes. Um I think if you're someone who yeah. is struggling with maybe let's say anxious attachment then you're like it's hard not to feel devalued. Mm. I think. S- say more. Uh, that's um, really interesting. Just I think that yeah, if you're somebody who feels like maybe there is a hole in your love bucket and it's it's hard to ever feel like it's full, that if somebody gets a need met from somebody outside of you, mm. that it's hard not to take it personally yes. as like, well, I'm not providing this, I'm not good enough, yes. as opposed to like, I'm just one person, I can't provide all these things. Yes. Um, is it okay that they get this somewhere else? And that doesn't just have to be about sex. It could be like, you know, I like horror movies and my partner doesn't. So like I do that with other people. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I I think sometimes negotiated outsourcing can be really helpful. I like that, negotiated outsourcing. (laughs) I think I just coined something, negotiated outsourcing. You know, but but the other piece is, you know, that um, let's say you are in a long-term monogamous relationship or you start there there's aspects of self that that naturally go dormant. In other words, the just at the by the nature of the relationship, the limitations of the relationship, mm-hmm. that your partner cannot be all things to you. They just simply can't. And so and mm-hmm. so it's it's kind mm-hmm. of interesting because right, we're all so complex. So, you know, you have your emotional, your your professional life, your your intellectual life, your social life, your sexual life, your spiritual life. Mm-hmm. All of these things are sort of moving at different rates of speed. There's like a, a rhythm to all these different aspects of self. And so we're still always becoming. The, the, I think the problem is that um, our, our partner can't always help us become or fulfill us in all those different ways. And so circling back around to what we were talking about earlier, this idea that like whose job is that to carry the load? And I think even in our sexual lives, you know, Esther Perel talks a lot about us carrying our own eros, being responsible for our own eros, but where we get stuck our is- Our own eroticism. Yes, yeah. our own, uh, keeping our, our our sense of vitality alive internally. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and that really is something for us to do and also for us to advocate for because oftentimes your partner is not a mind reader. They're not going to know unless you share with them in a way. And, and I do think sometimes in anxious avoidant dynamics, someone might feel, let's say, they asked for something and then they got rejected by their partner. Either that or the partner tried to, this has happened, where the, the partner tried to engage with them. Okay, honey, you want to try it this way or you want to bring in a third person? And it was a disaster, mm-hmm. right? And then does that just shut that down mm-hmm. from ever happening again? Because right. there's right there's shame and blame and insecurity and feelings of failure. Mm-hmm. Like also, that's a really important thing to do. Which is okay. Do you have a process for when something goes terrible? Like you tr- you tried something new and it just it landed with a thud. Does that mean you never try again? And I hope not. As I opposed hope- to exploring what happened. Yes. Can we unpack it and yes. using it as a positive mm. learning experience? Yeah. Or potentially a bonding or healing experience. Mm-hmm. Like sexuality is such a doorway into, into uh, a way of knowing and understanding ourselves and, and each other if we allow it to. But I feel like sometimes there's so much other stuff happening around sex and morality and people's hangups and their attachment that really just shut the conversation down mm-hmm. totally. It's a shame. Yeah. 
Oh, well, that is like so much to ponder. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Um, I I feel like we could keep going on about this for a long time. But if people want to take that next step um, and maybe find you to do that work, um, how can they get in touch? Uh, well, you can find me uh, through my website, uh, shiromyrotherapy.com. Uh, I'm also on Instagram. You can always email me. And uh, yeah, thank you for having me on the show. This was so interesting. I feel like we could talk for hours. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, we totally could. Oh, I fucking thank you so much. <laughs> I don't even know. I'm just like so happy. This was such a good convo. Um as always, if you want to keep up to date with what we're doing, uh, you can follow us on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars, and never hesitate to email us at slutsandscholars at gmail.com. Bye.